Thank you for listening to Mailbox Money, your guided tour through safe, sacred, and speculative investing with a plan and a purpose to do more good with newfound peace of mind. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Mailbox Money. I'm Jackson Wood, joined by my partner and my friend, Ryan Kruger. In today's episode, we are going to do a deeper dive into investment strategy. And we're going to talk about what it is that we do at our firm and hopefully take this very broad, confusing concept of investment strategies and allocation and make this very simple and digestible because that's how we do it at our firm. Um, I remember back when I was just into the industry, there was always this debate and it's still raging on today. Is it growth or is it value? And our simple approach is, well, what if there's something better that's more applicable and will help our clients achieve their goals even quicker? And so we're going to talk about our strategy, but I just wanted to kind of open with this idea that this is the great debate in finance. There's growth or value. And it's so far it's penetrated into the industry far enough where you have advisors at the same firm that are growth advisors and other advisors or portfolio managers are value. At this point, if I pull up my podcast app, I see the different investment shows that I subscribe to. In my mind, I know, oh, these are value guys. I know what the concept, what the topic is going to be about in this show. And then I, oh, these guys are growth guys. I know what, what this one will be. And, you know, and this, this entire debate has made it confusing and difficult. The word allocate, so this from Ryan, comes from separate. And the idea and what's happened because of this is investors are so separated from their money. There are these gigantic, confusing 140-page financial plans. We use one-page financial plan in our firm, and we do that for a purpose and a reason. And it's to unite the investor and our clients with their money again. See, the purpose of us saving money and doing this and being disciplined is so that one day we have financial freedom, we have our freedom day, and we can spend the money and live on the money that we've saved today. So today's episode, you're going to see a little bit of the black belt arithmetic and, and some of the things that we think about, but hopefully you come away from this relieved, excited, and just ready to, to build your portfolio and, and make your life even better. So without further ado, I think that's a beefy of an intro as I can give. Hopefully people haven't turned it off already. <laughs> the, the, the growth or value debate, and then even more confusing, Jackson, depending on who you listen to and read. Some people say throw the, both those fundamentals out the window and um, focus on the technicals. And we'll talk about that also. Um, which is it? Growth, value, momentum. And you have really, really smart people with heels dug in on each side of this debate. Um, I've, we've, we've built this firm uh, around a couple of simple, repeatable processes. One of them is that curiosity beats conviction. So nothing that we're sharing has anything to do with what we believe is right. Um, and I think not only as a portfolio manager, but as a husband and a dad, the, the best trade I ever made was one day realizing that it's much more important just to get it right than want to be right. And oh my gosh, what, what a life altering um, improvement that is. And I, and I would never want to stop improving. So if you're listening to this, if you happen to be 
in one camp or the other, or you have no idea what camp you're supposed to be into, you just want to learn, then I'm hoping that the biggest takeaway would be to never assume anything and, and to at any time look for improvement. That's what we do with companies. We're going to break down the stock market right here, but I would think about that as a process too. And then to make this silly, simple analogy to start with, because when people talk about growth or value stocks, it's not that different than being asked the question, would you rather have a fast new car or an old coffee table? As silly as that might sound to someone listening to this, that's how silly the growth or value debate sounds to me. I don't even think it's the right question. Um, and by the way, as a good hint, I own neither. <laughs> um, I don't own a fast car or an old coffee table. Um, so let's talk about growth and value stocks. And, and as a quick hint, I own an old car and a new coffee table. If that gives you a glimpse <laughs> and a peek around the corner at how different we look at this, I don't think it should be one or the other. Um, I think it should be a balanced solution that is capable of improving your life as an investor with evidence, not predictions, not throwing darts, which is what Wall Street the fancy term is allocation that ends up with those pie charts or those 401k menu of mutual fund choices that's just dizzying and confusing. Um, so when I say willing to throw everything out the window and start from scratch, you know, maybe more than a better car or more coffee to begin with, what if it's a bike and a water that we really need? And what in the world do I mean with that with these stretched analogies here, but I would be willing to consider a better solution at any part of my portfolio or life if it was a healthier solution that could last longer. And so let's start with assuming nothing and being willing to start all over again through all these debates out the window if there is a chance to improve. And that is the key word that to me transcends growth or value when I'm looking at businesses. And we should always think about this as, as looking at a business of the stock market and these tickers and changes every day and the crowds. If the market closed and didn't reopen again for 10 years, which businesses would you want to own? And starting to think of it that way may just help. And by the way, good news here. Um, what we're about to talk about, since we will be unique, and if anybody does adopt any of these, um, the crowds are not very good at math. So if you believe in any of the repeatable process of simple math and nonfiction, you will, will have a supreme advantage when you enter the stock market because the crowds are not very good at math and nonfiction. And they are very, very good at believing in and following and running with stories. Um, so when I say improve, I would never want to own a growth company that I couldn't find at a better price at some point with patience, no more than I would want to own a value company that can grow again. I have to have both growth and value. And in either scenario, Jackson, and this is where kind of some of the voodoo and the lines and the really, really confusing part gets in, but we're gonna break it down simple here. I want positive momentum improvement in growth companies or undervalued companies. And so we're going to talk about growth, value, owning both at the same time, and positive momentum. And I just avoid 
all the rest. And that does end up with a very concentrated list. And you have to believe in selection. You have to believe homework matters. And math backs me up on that. You know, there's a, I really like what you said about imagine you take the tickers and the fund name and the the platform, the custodian, you log in and, and you thought about this process of investing as simply taking money from your paycheck. And now you have to go out and you have to decide what company to invest in. And I always like the exercise of if I had money in my bank account, I had my checkbook, I knocked on the business door. What would I want to see happening at that company as I talked to the CEO and looked at the financials in order for me to feel comfortable writing a check? I think this entire uh, Wall Street approach of putting tickers on it and showing you the charts distracts us from what it is we're actually doing. And I really like what you said about we want companies that can grow. We don't want to pay too much for those companies that we believe will grow in the future. And then if we find a company that has good value, we want to make sure, make sure that the future looks bright as well. And so I love this combination of we're getting growth in the future, we're getting a good price, and that there's this momentum behind the business. And if you think of momentum in a technical term, you might be thinking of charts and all these lines and RSIs popping up in your head. But what we really mean by momentum is more tangible than that, that the direction the business is heading is something that we're excited as stakeholders about. So kind of removing this Wall Street filter and cloud of confusion from this, I think most investors would have that sort of uh, requirement before they wrote a check from their checkbook and gave it to a business physically. And that to me is an important distinction because it's a lot easier when your bank account is linked to your investment account to just pull the money out, you don't see it, and it goes into this fund that you don't know what you own. And I think that's a really powerful exercise and visualization for investors to go through. So let's talk about specifically what kind of growth and what kind of value we have found over time with repeatable success works and what we're willing to wait for. And anybody, um, can. There, there's no black boxes here. We like sharing an open playbook as we go. We learn from others. Um, we get smarter living in a world of abundance. Um, there is an ability for anybody listening this to do this and, and just think about it in the simplest terms like you just echoed again. And I'll, I'll take it a step further. Instead of investing in a business, what if you were stuck owning the entire business? That's how this started out and how an investor mindset should be to begin with. So if you were going to buy and own the entire business and you couldn't sell it and the stock market closed for 10 years, what not only would you be willing to be stuck with, so you better have paid a fair price, but what would you be over the moon excited about its growth prospects as an ability to kick off cash flow and earnings to you as an owner, a stakeholder, not somebody speculating that you could sell that stock or a share of that stock at a higher price. If you own the whole business, what I would want to look for is there's different kinds of growth. Let's talk about the best repeatable growth. That's operating growth. So operating earnings as opposed to manufactured or accounting tricks or subsidized or non-recurring profits. They can all be reported as the same dollar of earnings to Wall Street. But if you really get deep into the numbers, you can separate recurring operating earnings versus all in together earnings. And Wall Street rewards companies that beat 
their earnings estimate. So there's every incentive in the world to shove as much good stuff in that sausage factory accounting department. Whoops, did I just say that? Um, <laughs> as possible versus the repeatable new unit organic growth. Um, and and there's a lot of examples of that today. And sometimes I think we get lulled into the, oh, that was a, everybody, you know, that, that'll never happen again. That was crazy. Well, crazy keeps happening, you know, and, and, and incentives are lined up for it too. And I'll use my, the example of the bluest of the blue chip. This is not about risky stuff and, and, and can be the most dangerous is what we think we know that just ain't so. So when I started in the business, the bluest of the blue chip was a, uh, a manufacturer of light bulbs and appliances. I'm not going to name names, but most people know it was back 100 plus years, and it was a wonderful company um, that relied on electricity um, that turned into a financially engineered hedge fund in drag financial services company by the end of it. I mean, books were written about how great this company was, but things change, and you got to pop the hood and you got to look at what is repeatable earnings. And sticking to its knitting and its real playbook versus stuff that they're kind of sort of trying and doing and then maybe that becomes a bigger and bigger piece uh, of the puzzle and i want methodical repeatable growth and i want to measure jackson the direction of that growth it's easy to say great earnings growth sales growth cash flow growth whatever it is any metric that you use, we use all. But what's more indicative of future success and the ideal setup and turning points we've found and where we really roll up our math sleeves is the change in direction. Is that growth accelerating or is it perhaps flatlining? And yes, it's a big, great growth company, but it's all of a sudden slowly decelerating and the biggest moats in the world can spring a leak. Um, and an example recently of maybe the next bluest of blue chip, most popular company that nobody questions, and then all of a sudden people are scratching their head um, to now flip that coin of growth on the other side and ask at what price. There's is one of those fast, cool car companies. And, and one of the many reasons I don't own those or these stocks, I guess. And I'm beautifully boring. Uh, that is a great growth story. They absolutely do have cool, great technology. And this is not about one company. This could be about a lot of different ideas because you're going to hear other ones down the road. And it could change the world. And all of those most optimistic, bullish growth stories might actually even play out with these fast car like type companies, the shiny objects. And except for the fact that if you wanted to own the whole business, and I'll just use this car company as an example, the average price to earnings ratio, which is one way to measure the valuation, the average has been 500 times earnings. So if you were going to buy a, a little old paint shop down Main Street in small town Idaho or Texas and think about this as a business, not a flashy, cool car company stock that you hope you could sell to somebody else. That's called the greater fool theory. If you're thinking about this as a business owner, if you were going to go buy a paint company, 
at 500 times earnings. So the earnings you receive as the owner, you would break even based on the price you paid for the entire business 500 years later. And so that was overvalued. And now, by the way, that fast car company is trading at 50 times earnings. I don't own it now. We didn't own it then. There's plenty of other choices. We don't need to get in a debate. And that, by the way, that brings out the sharp knives on Wall Street. It, it's either for or against. And the most popular, biggest companies in the world. But we have choices as portfolio managers and individual investor listening to this. If it's at all slightly confusing, if you're not sure about the growth or the valuation, you have the ability to walk away and not own it. Now, if you own the entire market or an index, you've made another choice altogether. You don't believe in homework or active management or that there are differences in companies. You just want to own it all. And that's a that's a choice. And for some folks that have no desire, ability or time, that's a choice, too. But then you do own even more of those overvalued companies because that index is based on market capitalization, not earnings or fundamentals. Yeah, I love this idea of constantly looking at the improvement in the company because one of the things that we always say on the show is we let the math do the talking. There's no room for opinion. And so it very well could be that one of these companies we own um, that has incredible growth rate, you know, the, the moat is expanding, something may go wrong and there's plenty of other options out there. But if we're not looking at this regularly and consistently, those tiny little changes in the direction will go unnoticed and you'll end up taking a company that was fantastic, making light bulbs or whatever, and they've morphed over time because of direction from the CEO or the board or whatever calculated bet they, they made that didn't pay off. And now you're stuck with this company that doesn't even look like the company you it was when you first purchased it. And so I, I love the idea of the math does the talking and it will tell you the truth about the companies. And you don't have to look at reports or opinions or watch, shouldn't pick on CNBC, but you don't have to listen to their opinions and what they think may happen because the math will tell you exactly what's going on. And that to me is important. It makes me feel comfortable allocating my money that I work so hard for. And so let's use a little specific math here to illustrate um, a very complex and important and potentially confusing point and break this down with some simpler numbers. So sometimes folks talk about the PE or the valuation. If you flip that over and divide the earnings into the price, you get an earnings yield as one way to measure um, stocks. And, and more specifically, what we like, as we talked about a minute ago, is operating earnings yield. So now all of a sudden you cannot find that in the PE or the earnings yield. So we do a little bit deeper dive on the math. And to show you vividly an example of how little the crowds care about math, um, and it, it's, it's staggering, and we have this chart, and Jackson can share it, um, posted on, it, it's a candidate for one of our charts of the year book that we put out for anybody interested. They can email us or follow Jackson on Twitter. He can, might be able to put this up um, or in the show notes. So we, we measure the sectors, each one of the sectors, and how much the crowd has voted to make that a part of the index. And so how much money is invested, the biggest overweight 
in the S&P, even after recent destruction, is no, no surprise, the shiniest objects, the fastest cars, technology. So one out of every $4 invested in the S&P 500 is in technology stocks, 25% close to it. The operating earnings yield for technology companies is 5%. So 5% operating earnings yield. Just keep that in the back of your mind and won't go through each one of the sectors. But to look at the exact opposite, the most unloved sector heading into this year, energy stocks were less than 5% of the market. The operating earnings yield for those energy stocks, that sector, is 27% per year. So if you did buy that whole little paint store shop business and didn't think about trading these stocks back and forth, you would have your money back in less than four years, break even, worst case scenario, if the stock market never opened. Um, I love the fact that crowds aren't very good at math and don't care about selection or don't even believe in it. Um, you can actually, we love the ability to own faster growing businesses, which will cost more. I mean, there's no magic bullet here. And, and we like to own undervalued businesses that are starting to grow and, and a blend and a balance. Very rarely and occasionally to prove how beautifully inefficient this market is. So rip all those efficient market theory chapters out of your kid's economics book before they go to college like I did. Um, <laughs> it, it is so beautifully inefficient and psychology is so overwhelmingly leading us to believe in better stories than math that occasionally you'll get both in the exact same spot. So one of the other potential charts of the year for us is, and again, we didn't, we're not energy guys, but the math led us there several years ago to believe that it was wildly underowned, undervalued, and would be growing. And that's just one sector. There's several other really, really good opportunities in other sectors. This is just the most dramatic one I've seen in many, many years. And I want to speak about this real quick because it's very confusing about valuation. Oh, I missed it. It's up. Big rally. It's too expensive. That's not valuation. So right. energy is the biggest rally this year. The sector's up over 60%. And the knee-jerk reaction is, wow, too far, too high, too fast. I'm not going to buy it now. The valuation of the energy sector has actually fallen by a third, meaning their underlying earnings free cash flow are growing even faster. So I like to think about this you know, and, and why valuation matters so much in addition to its growth prospects is Nobody would, no matter how much they love the house, and, and we spend more time, unfortunately, shopping around for those cars and houses sometimes than we do understanding the dynamics of a stock price. Um, you, you wouldn't buy a house. You wouldn't dream of buying a house without looking at the comps in the neighborhood. And then also walking through the house and looking at its own condition we should do the same thing with stocks. That's all we do in valuation. Um, and, and an owner mindset and the stock market give a couple more clues and a couple of our favorite metrics to think about and maybe dispel another notion um, that no matter how sophisticated the investor, this one always gets me that, that the, the stock price is too high after they see it, their eye level versus 
revaluing the entire business based on the fundamentals. So there's stocks that have four digits in the ticker. I mean, talk about a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars a share. Well, I can't buy. That's too expensive. I'd much rather go buy a ten dollar stock because it can go up to eleven easier. That ten percent move isn't any easier. And dare I say, second order thinking here, maybe peeking around the corner as an owner mindset. What are the the management of that business, the board and the CEO, what are what's their signal to you as a potential stakeholder if they're willing to throw a big share price and they're not willing to split it and resplit it and then go issue more shares? Are they potentially willing to be patient themselves and attract only longer term stakeholders at the margin? It's something to think about. Um, there's not as much trading in those bigger priced shares that are not more overvalued. So two of the metrics that we use in addition to that, to think about it as a stakeholder mentality, we look buyback yield. So not just the dividend yield, which people talk about a lot, but our shares cheap enough on a valuation basis that the company doesn't care what the crowd thinks and actually may benefit from the crowd ignoring the valuation. And they are buying back shares and a return of capital to you as an owner. Now you own a bigger piece of the business without even moving. And then we take it up a, a notch further. And one of my very favorite metrics is stakeholder yield, which is a combination of that buyback signal on valuation, dividend, and then also debt pay down or elimination. So buyback yield, dividend yield, and direction of debt, paying that back or off entirely. You can calculate the shareholder yield. You add all those things together as an owner of the business that is a wonderfully overlooked clue. So I, I think that that is probably my favorite metric to look at. And if you take this example, we've been talking about this, and you think about a business that you might own, a couple partners do really well throughout the year, it would be a very good indication about the future of the business if you as a partner went out and bought equity back from other partners. You would own more of the company if you had... Um, extra cash and you paid a dividend or profit distributions. And then if you were aggressive about paying your debts off, um, that would be very powerful combination for you as a solo business owner or a couple partners, small business owner about the future of that business. And so I love this entire concept of taking wall street out of this or the complex financialization of ownership and businesses. And if we just focus in on, what it really is, the ownership of companies and what that can do for you, how you would filter through the sea of availability and find the ones that you like and then rely on the math moving forward. And just, I, I vividly remember the conversation that you and I had about energy sector and the price movement and how they've gotten cheaper because the earnings have grown faster than the price of the uh, of the investment. And I remember I was at the mall with my daughter. She loves these pretzel. I don't know if you guys have a pretzel maker in Houston. It's like these doughy pretzel bites. That's our treat. If she, you know, at the weekend, if she's been a good girl throughout the week, we take her to get some pretzels. And I remember sitting there in the line trying to buy these pretzels for her, just realizing how powerful. Because when the price moves, you're going to get a lot of investors that say, this is, I've made my money, I'm out, and, and they're gone. Or 
if you think about it from an allocator's perspective, if a 5% weighting in your portfolio at the beginning of the year went to 10% because the sector shot the lights out, regardless of what the earnings are doing or the cash flow or any of that, you may have to just trim it back from a risk management perspective, not realizing that you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot moving forward. And so as there's all these complex reallocations and rebalances and, and diversification rules, the, what's better for the stakeholder is to look at the internals, pop the hood of the car you're buying, make sure the engine works. I couldn't tell you anything about engines, but make sure that it you know checks out. And then you're going to be excited about that same vehicle moving forward. And so the, the overwhelming, like powerful thing is think of this as a stakeholder instead of a trader or just arbitrary ticker symbols, because these all represent underlying real businesses. And what we want to own are the best ones. And then on top of those fundamentals, confession time here, brother. I got a couple of them. Technicals, or as I like to say, positive momentum does matter. Not to be swayed by it, but to break ties amongst businesses that may be equally attractive from growth and valuation. And I think this gets so confusing that most folks either write it off. Um, and by the way, I, I know just as many successful technical traders as I do fundamental analysts. There's good about each. I'm greedy. I've learned from both. And I know the math works in both. And real life is another simple example. So confession, I absolutely believe that momentum is a huge factor in both directions, positive and negative. Um, second confession, I think I mentioned this to you recently, but it's a perfect way to illustrate that buying and selling pressure is real underneath and around these stocks. So confession, I went to a Harry Styles concert with my daughter, speaking of daughter time. Um, Think of all you've heard about technical analysis and momentum in this way, and maybe it'll help. If you see a line forming around the Moody Center the day before, tickets are going to be sold the next afternoon. What do you think is likely happen to those tickets? <laughs> and do you think there's buying pressure at that concentrated limited supply of tickets. I think of that when I look at lines in the stock market and it's a simple way of looking. And, and then I contrast that. I also went and I'm proud and you would have dug this a lot more. I went to an Aaron Watson concert recently at a little honky tonk and outside of town, nobody's ever heard of or ever wanted to go. There was less buying pressure That's right. on those tickets. I happened to want to own each. It improved my life immeasurably. It's what I wanted. Fundamentally, I enjoyed both of those. But at the end, and with a little bit of instincts, and as I told my daughter, there is going to be a better time to buy some of those same tickets. And if you had bought those Harry Styles concert tickets three months before the concert in hopes that you were going to make a couple bucks and sell it on the secondary market. You post your price with three months to go full of 
excitement that you were one of the lucky ones to get that ticket. Do you think you're going to post a higher price that day trying to get top dollar three months out or an hour before the concert starts and you still haven't sold it yet? Which is going to be the direction of the offer and the bid and measuring selling and buying pressure and it's real and then measuring the landscape and just counting the number of seats in each venue. It's available in the stock market too. There's a limited supply of shares unless they're unloading even more and creating them. Are they reducing the seats? Are they increasing them? All of those can help us analyze the direction and the positive or negative momentum on top of growth and valuation measurements. I do not think it is one or the other. I think it should be a balance and blend of the best of each and it requires selection and great discipline to know when you're wrong so you can make room for a new, better opportunity. Again, it goes back to improvement. It should never stop. And it all combines to make a beautifully simple, elegant, but now that they've listened to the last 32 minutes, <laughs> robust portfolio that helps you get closer to your financial goals and that you can have confidence in. So if anybody listening would like to schedule a meeting with our team, chat with Ryan and I, you can email us team at freedomdaysolutions.com. You can check out our website, freedomdaysolutions.com. And with that episode, we will see everybody next week. This show is brought to you by Freedom Day Solutions, LLC, a registered investment advisory firm advising individuals and families nationwide. Performance is not guaranteed and past results are not necessarily indicative of future performance. To learn more, visit freedomdaysolutions.com. This show contains general information that is not suitable for everyone and was shared for informational purposes only. Any forward-looking statement or opinion expressed is subject to change without notice. Nothing contained herein constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, nor is it to be relied on in making investment or other decisions. Clients of Freedom Day Solutions may hold positions in the securities discussed.